O mount of grace, to thee we cling. From the law has set us free. Once and for all on Calvary's hill, love and justice shall agree. Praise the Lord, the price is paid, the curse defeated by the Lamb. We who once were slaves by birth, sons and daughters, now we stand. (laughs) That's amazing. That is amazing. Let's pray. Oh God, I, I just don't know that we fully know what to do with the reality that we who once were slaves and aliens and strangers, God, we are sons and daughters. And we bow today before our Heavenly Father. God, your grace is absolutely amazing. God, would you speak to us through your word this morning? God, would you strike us with a holy awe of you, O God? God, set our gaze upon you. No one else, Lord, is our prayer this morning. In the name of Christ, amen. Turning your copy of God's Word this morning to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 will be beginning into the Lord's Prayer this morning. I've, over the years, found, um, I guess the right word to be amusement at the prayer police that gather at my house. Um, and many of you, parents especially, have seen this, and some of you are prayer police right now. You know, you, we, have, we say the blessing or something, and as we finish up and we say amen, everybody looks up, and there's those times in our life, in our family, where uh, one of the kids is like, um, you didn't have your eyes closed. <laughs> you know? And then, of course, the funny thing is what? You didn't either. Like, how did you see them? And, the, you know, and so we laugh about that. And then uh, I guess back this summer, um, we all gathered to pray and uh, we got finished. And uh, my niece said, Todd, Todd, like this. And she, wanted, she was upset because I wasn't clasping my hands, right? And so now when we pray, we, we make sure we clasp our hands, you know, around, around Miss Hazel. And so it's just funny, right? It's funny to see that, that how we, we correct one another sometimes as children. And Jesus is confronting prayer and, and what, he, what we understand is hypocritical prayer, not what my kids are doing or my niece. But in Matthew 6, the Sermon on the Mount, Christ is confronting hypocritical prayer. And he's looking, he's confronting the, the idea that, that we, we just pray to impress others, Right? And Jesus gives us a statement here, pray like this, but, 
Jesus' statement of praying like this carries much more significance and much more weight than my children who say, pray with your eyes closed when they were small, or um, the clasping your hands, or you have to be in this certain posture, right, in prayer. What Jesus says when he says pray like this carries great weight and significance for he is speaking as the Son of God. He is speaking as our Lord. He's not as concerned with the technique of our prayer as he is in what we pray and how we pray, the motive of our prayer. Let's read this passage together. We'll back up and cover some of what we did last week just for context. We'll start in verse 5 of Matthew 6 this morning. The word of God says this, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive, other, forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. In, in this passage, Jesus is confronting two problems of hypocrisy and prayer. And we, we talked about these last week, but in way of review, the first problem in verses 5 and 6 is a desire to be seen in prayer, to be seen praying. The hypocrites want to impress men with how spiritual they look. And the second problem was a desire to be heard praying, as the Gentiles did. And the hypocrite, the Gentile, the unbeliever, wants to impress men with their words, perhaps even bend the ear of God with their many or their big words. And so Jesus, beginning in verse 9, corrects this. It's his corrective that he offers, and he says, pray then like this. The hypocrites, they, they may look and, and sound impressive. They may use big words that intimidate you or make you think that I have to have a theological degree in, able to pray, or in order to pray. But Jesus corrects that. And he says, pray like this. You pray the way that I will show you. And as he says that, he's not given a, a formula or just formulaic prayer to repeat as though it, the words themselves have some sort of magical power. power. Instead, what he's doing is he's providing a model for prayer. So he's not saying this is something you have to recite and this is the only way you pray, but, but when you pray, I want you to understand to pray like this, pray in this manner, pray in this fashion, pray in this spirit. Now, this doesn't mean that you can't recite the prayer. It doesn't mean that certainly today for us, contextually, that you can't sing the prayer, right? It doesn't mean you, you cannot recite it, that you're wrong in reciting it. It just simply means that you're not required to recite it right? That's, that's what it means. We actually have numerous prayers recorded from Jesus in his ministry, don't we? But only here and in Luke eleven two 2 to 4, 
are these words used in the prayers that Jesus prays. And so we know that the sinless Son of God prayed in many ways, expressing his prayers to the Father with various words, and not just these words. So he gives us here a model for prayer. I want you to look as we begin looking at the Lord's Prayer, and I want you to see the structure of it. That you can break it down into kind of three main areas, three components, three parts. The first one is the beginning of verse 9. When he says, pray then like this, and he begins, the, the first is the address, our Father in heaven. It says who we are praying to. And then next, the next segment is three statements of, of worship, of submission to God. Hallowed be your name, number one. Your kingdom come, number two. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, number three. So Three statements focused on the Lord, on submission to Him, on worshiping Him, on desiring that God's will be done. And then the final section is verses 11 to 13, where we see three petitions or three requests for our own needs. Number one, give us this day our daily bread. Number two, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And number three, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. John Stott, in his commentary, he observes this in thinking about the structure that we just talked about, those three components. He says this, when we have taken time and trouble to orientate ourselves towards God and recollect what manner of God he is, our personal, loving, powerful Father, then the content of our prayers will be radically affected in two ways. First, God's concerns will be given priority. Secondly, our own needs, though demoted to second place, will be comprehensively committed to him. What we're going to do this morning is we're going to take time and trouble to orientate ourselves towards God and recollect what manner of God he is. And we're going to allow that to inform us and to remind us of what of a great and a merciful and gracious father he is. So let's ask this question, who do we pray to? Who do we pray to? And we begin in verse 9, who do we pray to? The address is to who? Our Father in heaven. And I want you to see three aspects of that statement, three aspects of that address that are critical for us to understand this morning. Here's the first one, is we pray to our Father, our Father. He says that, that we pray to our Father in heaven. And that here, here, here is one of the essential differences, the essential distinctions between the prayer of the Christian and the prayer of an unbeliever or of one of another religion. See, those in, in other religions, world religions, they may reference, those world religions may reference God as, as a father of creation or a father of all men, like this generic distant God. The, the one who is an unbeliever, a secularist, in, in times of tragedy, what, what do you hear? Our, our prayers are with you. Although they don't worship God, some of them don't even believe that God exists, but yet they offer up prayers in those moments. Thoughts of goodwill, gestures of goodwill to make you feel better, to know that they're thinking about you. Well, the distinction we have as Christians, as the people of God, is that we do not pray as a mere gesture of goodwill. We, we do not pray to this distant God who sits far removed from his creation. We do not pray to a God that we have no relationship with. No, 
None of that is true for us. On the contrary, the Christian prays to the holy God who has adopted him as his son and given him the right, the privilege, the blessing, the honor to call him father. That's who we pray to. Christianity is distinct in the personal nature of relating to and understanding and knowing God as our father. It's why we sing a song. We sang it last week, asking questions of amazement, right? Who else could rescue me from my failing? Who else would offer his only son? Those are amazing statements. What's the next one? Who else invites me to call him father? (laughs) Only a holy God. I mean, we sit back and we sing that song and those Questions are questions that we use to to think about the amazing truth that God has rescued us. He has saved us by giving his only son. He invites us to call him father. This is profound. This is absolutely amazing. Let's step back in the Old Testament for a minute. The Psalms. If you just trace through the Psalms, the the prayers in the Psalms address God in many ways. In Psalms 3.1, O Lord, in 4-1, O God of my righteousness, 7-1, O Lord my God, 44-1, O God, 80 verse 1, O shepherd of Israel, 84 verse 8, O Lord God of hosts, 88-1, O Lord God of my salvation, 94-1, O Lord God of vengeance, 99-8, O Lord our God, and in Psalm 109-21, O God my Lord. We have all kinds of different different addresses to God. But if you turn back and you just flipped over this morning, you flip back to Genesis 1 and you start reading. As you read through the Old Testament, you go all the way through the Old Testament, all the way through the Psalms, all the way through the the minor prophets and into the New Testament. You know what you do not find? You do not find an individual addressing God in a personal way as Father. As a matter of fact, scholars have looked and there is no recorded instance of a Jew personally addressing God as Father until the 10th century AD, except for one. Who was that? There was one Jew, right, that called God my Father. That was Jesus. The only Jew addressing God as my Father was Jesus. Matthew 7, 21. He said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. In Matthew 11, 27, Jesus says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. In Matthew 26, 39, Jesus prays, My Father. If it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. This terminology, this address, this claim of Jesus caused great problems among the Jews. In John 5, 17, Jesus healed on the Sabbath. Of course, this causes an uproar, Right? At the end of this account in John 5, Jesus says this. He he answered them and he says, My father is working until now. 
and I am working. Now, when the Jews hear him say, my father, they don't go, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, good. Yeah, your father, great. You're the son of God. No. Their reaction is absolutely opposite of that. When Jesus says, my father is working until now and I am working, what we read next is it says, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even, even calling God his own father. This is a significant thing for the Jew. When the Jew hears Jesus saying, my father, they are infuriated and they seek to kill Jesus. They're not seeking to praise him. They're not seeking to magnify him. They're not seeking to follow him. When he says, my father, they are ready to kill him. They're ready to kill him. So no Jew. There's no time in the Old Testament where an individual expresses a relationship in a manner saying, my father. What's changed? I mean, think about our prayers. Pastor Matt's prayer this morning. I didn't ask him to pray what he prayed. I didn't tell him what to pray. How did he start? How do you reference God? What's the most common way that you probably reference God when you pray? Father. I, I, would, I would probably go out on a limb and say that in your Sunday school classes this morning, when you prayed, that your teacher referred to God as Father. It's the most common way we address God. Father. But yet, all through Scripture, coming up to the time of Christ, that is not seen. It's not kosher. It's not what is done. It's not proper. What changed? What brought this change? That Jesus would now say, this is how you pray. Our Father. What brought that change? Listen, you need to know that the coming of Christ and His atonement forever changed the way believers relate to God the Father. That we now, because of the work accomplished through Christ in his living a sinless life, in him dying a sacrificial death, because of what he did, it changed forever the way we relate to God the Father. And we come and we pray before him and we pray, Our Father, our Father in heaven. Listen, those of you who are sitting here today that are unbelievers, you can address God by many titles. You can refer to God by many things, but you have no right to call him father no privilege in that that is reserved only for the believers an unbeliever cannot refer to god as my father you can't refer to him as father oh but believers we have been given that blessing we've been given that privilege we've been given that honor to pray our father in heaven I think it's so significant what Jesus says after he, he rises from the grave and, and Mary is there and she's looking and you have that moment where she is just shocked. She's, she's dumbfounded. She's trying to wrap her mind around everything that's happening. And Jesus looks, to it, looks at her in John 20, 17. Listen to what he says. Think about the significance of what he's about to say. He looks at her and he says, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brother's, 
That's significant, but that's another sermon for another day. Go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father. (laughs) What? Mary surely knows. Surely knows in that moment what just happened. That Jesus looked at and said, I am ascending to my Father and your Father. To my God, your God. How does this happen? How does this, how does this change occur in our relationship with God? How, how, does, how does one go from just addressing God as all the ways that he rightfully should be addressed in Psalms and the Old Testament to, to where we can come and we can bow before God and say, our Father who is in heaven. What's happened to give us this great, profound privilege? Well, what's happened is one of the, in my opinion, one of the greatest, most profound truths in all of Scripture, one of the greatest, most profound realities regarding our salvation. We have been adopted by God in Christ. We've been adopted by God Almighty. The holy, reigning, risen God has adopted us. It has changed our relationship. So we who once were called sons of disobedience and children of wrath, in Ephesians 2, 2 to 3, we are now called sons of God. Outside of Christ, Scripture describes you as a son of disobedience, a daughter of disobedience, a child of wrath. Oh, but in Christ, you've been adopted and you are a son of God, a child of God. Listen to this, John 1, 12. But, all, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become what? Children of God. Romans 8, 14 to 17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Man, what a, what a deep, heavy, weighty passage that we have been adopted as sons and we can cry out to God, Abba, Father, that we are heirs of His. We are His children, heirs, joint heirs, fellow heirs with Christ. In Galatians 3, 26 to 28, we read, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Through faith. In Galatians 4, 4 through 7, The beautiful summary passage of the gospel. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. So that, why? Why? So that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you're sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Man, what a a beautiful, beautiful passage. We go over to Ephesians. In Ephesians 1, 5. In love, he predestined us for what? 
adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And a beautiful passage, 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are, it says. I I love those four words. And so we are. Oh, the love of God that he's given us that we will be called children of God. That we've been adopted. That we can bow before him and say, our Father, our Father. And lay all our requests, all our praises before him. See, the greatness, the the grace, the the mercy, the love of God displayed in adoption. Led, led J.I. Packer to say about adoption, he called adoption the highest privilege the gospel offers. The highest privilege the gospel offers is to be adopted and to be children of God, to, to call God Father. It's the same thing that it leads Wayne Grudem, the, the theologian, to observe God could have given us justification without the privileges of adoption into his family. Do you understand that? God could have done so much. He wasn't required to adopt us. He wasn't required to do that. We could, have, we could have right legal standing before him without any family relationship with him. He could have declared us just. He could have justified us, declared us righteous, but yet not say, come and relate to me as father. We could have been redeemed from sin without becoming heirs with Christ. We could have looked to God Almighty for help without being able to cry out to Him as Abba, Father, Daddy. We could have seen the love of God demonstrate on the cross while never experiencing the love of the Holy Father for His children. We could have looked from a distance and beheld it and seen it and gone, wow, what a beautiful picture of love. But God didn't stop there. He adopted us as His children. He welcomed us in as heirs, joint heirs of Christ. We've been justified, redeemed, and reconciled by God Almighty who loves us and adopts us as his own. If if nothing else, nothing else this morning, I just don't want you to leave without seeing the significance of the depth, the beauty, the grace, the mercy, the love of God displayed in the way we relate to him as father. So that's the first thing we need to see, our father in heaven. The second thing we see in this statement is we say our father, our father in heaven. I talked to you about the Old Testament, about tracing that. And you, you can trace, you can indeed see in the Old Testament, there are references to father. Some of you have already looked. You're like, really? Is there no father in the Old Testament? God's never called father? And so you've been flipping the Old Testament, right? And you didn't hear anything else that was said. Well, hopefully, you can go back and watch the video. Um, but hopefully, if you did that, your time was well spent and you found a few references. There is a theme. There are times where God is referred to as father in the Old Testament. There is a, a theme of him being called father, but it's always in reference to the nation of Israel. It's always in reference to the people as a whole. It's not a personal designation. 
It's the, that he's the father of his people, the father of the nation. And now we're called and we're given the privilege of saying, our father, on a personal level. When you pray, our father, on a personal level. And so that reminds us of three truths. The word our should remind us of three truths this morning. Here's the first one. Is that first, we have a personal relationship with God. We are not deists. We are not those who would say God is distant. He is out there and we don't relate to him. We think he exists, but we don't really know about him. No, we have a personal relationship with him. We do not pray coldly. We do not pray from the outside looking in at this God who adopted those people and loves those people and we're going to pray to him hoping that he hears our prayers. No, we have a personal relationship with him. So we pray warmly to our Father. It's just like, like when, as growing up, I, I can say, that's my dad, right? That's my dad. My kids can point out and say, that's my dad. And I walk on campus at Union University, and some of the kids down there know me as a professor. But when Sydney walks with me and they say, hey, I had him in class, she says, and that's my dad. It's different. It's a different relationship. It's a different relationship when I walk in here, and you may say, hey, that's one of our pastors, But my kids, my four kids, they say, that's my dad. They have a personal relationship, a a sonship, a child-father relationship. They know me in a special way, and I know them in a special way. We have that personal relationship with God. Our Father. Our Father. Second truth it tells us, reminds us of, is that we are co-heirs with Christ. We're co-heirs with Christ. When we say our Father, it's reminding us that we are co-heirs with Christ. We already looked at Galatians 4, 7 and Romans 8, 16 and 17. Both of those refer to us being heirs of God. In Romans, we, it read this, we are children of God and if children, then heirs and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We've been given an inheritance. We are the full right as an heir, the inheritance of eternal life. Just as, again, my children speak to me with full rights as my children, as my heirs, we come before God the Father as heirs, co-heirs with Christ. The third truth that reminds us of is that we are part of the family of God. We're part of the family of God. See, when we come together and we go before God in prayer and we say, Our Father, It reminds us that we are not alone. We walk not alone. We are sons of glory. Daughters of glory. We are children of God. John 1.12, right? You remember John 1.12? All who believe in Him. He gave the right to what? To be called children of God. Children of God. Brothers and sisters in Christ. It is a significant statement to look and to say brother or sister because that status is established by God in Christ as we've been adopted into his family and we are children of God. So Romans, I'm I'm sorry, Matthew 23, 9, Jesus says, call no man father for you have one father who is in heaven. Don't don't forget who your father is. 
Never forget that. I've always found it interesting in Mark 10. Mark 10 verses 28 to 31. I think it's just such an interesting passage. And the disciples are, are really just shocked at the, the teaching, the dialogue between Jesus and the rich, rich young man. And, and they see how difficult, how, how they say how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And, and their, their, their contention, their argument is we, we've left everything. We, we've left it all. And Jesus looks at them and talks about the, the power of God that with all things God is possible. And when they ask that, Peter is the one to ask him, obviously. You know, Peter always asks the question everybody's thinking. He says, we've, we've left everything to follow you. Everything. What do, what do we get? And Jesus says this. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and the age to come eternal life. I've always found it interesting what's left out. Did you catch it? Listen again. Jesus says, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold houses, Brothers, sisters, mothers, children, lands. I just find that interesting. That he says, you know what? You've left mother, father, children for my sake. And I will bless you with mother and children, brothers, sisters. (laughs) Doesn't say anything about father. Why? God is our father. God's our father. We need not any other father. He is our father. He is our father. So when we pray to him, we say our father. It reminds us of three beautiful truths. Now, the third thing we need to see in that address is this. It's the great balance of that statement. And it's the one that I think in many times in our day, is forgotten and pushed aside. Our Father, what? You can say, our Father in heaven, or our Father who is in heaven, right? Our Father in heaven is the, the balancing component of that address. See, Psalm eleven four says, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Psalm, or Isaiah 66, 1 says, Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. So what we have here is we have Jesus saying, I want you to come and pray like this, our Father in heaven. Our Father is the relationship. The relationship that we have that we can relate to God as Father, this personal relationship that we have with him, but also this relationship that we have with one another as brothers and sisters, as co-heirs with Christ, our Father. That's the relationship. In heaven reminds us of the reverence we're to have when we pray to God. It's the great balance to the relationship that we have. 
We have every right to come to God as our Father and to enjoy the intimacy that we have with Him in this relationship. But we do so mindful that He is the highly exalted ruler and king of all creation. He is seated on His throne, sovereignly ruling over all things. He is other, He is transcendent, He is different, He's to be reverenced, He's to be worshiped. So when we come to God in prayer, we are to rightly balance relationship with reverence. We don't just casually come and just casually pray like he's our good old buddy old pal, like he's just somebody else in the room. No, he is the reigning God of all creation. He is to be reverenced. He is holy, holy, holy. He is majestic. He is righteous. He is good. He is merciful. And he has adopted us. So we don't come and casually, disrespectfully, flippantly come and pray to him as though he is not who he is just because we have been given the right and the privilege to say, I have a father. You see, there is a certain respect that we have towards our father. I learned that as a child, that I could come and I could cry in the arms of my dad. I could sit in his security and his safety. I could relate to him. We could go fishing. We could go hunting. We spent time together. We loved each other. He provided for me. He cared for me. But there was a level of respect that he carried simply because he was my father. The same is true to an infinite more degree of God the Father who is in heaven. We don't cower before him in fear as though he is not our loving father who adopted us, but we also don't casually come before him as though he is not God. So when we pray our father in heaven is a reminder that we should pray in the spirit of what Paul concluded chapter one of 1 Timothy when he's writing to Timothy. He says to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. We just pray knowing that this king who is immortal, eternal, invisible, the only God, the only one deserving of honor and glory, we just come and we come before that king, that God, that sovereign ruler of all creation who holds our lives in, our hand, in his hands and he created and gave us life. We come before him and we say our, our father <laughs> and we pray. Listen, I want to leave you this morning with just with five implications from that. Our Father in heaven. Five implications. This is where I think this should come down and just settle in our lives in a very practical way. The significance that we have been adopted by God Almighty and call Him Father. Five implications. Number one, it means that we have a settled identity. We have a settled identity. Being adopted in Christ is a settled reality for the believer. It is not a status to strive for. It's a reality to rest in. It's a big difference. We're not trying to earn something from God. We're not trying to earn the status of being a child of God. It's who we are as a believer. If you're in here and you are truly a follower of Christ, you are are a child of God. So that means success at work or success at school does not make you more or less a child of God. It means that success on a sports field or a track or a course or a court, whatever it is, does not change your identity. 
It means that failures do not change your identity in Christ. It means that how much you know or can recite or reference or work with does not change your identity in Christ. It means that you rest in the settled identity of what John says in 1 John 3, 1. We already read it. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And what did he end up saying? Do you remember? And so we are. So we are. That's who we are. It's a settled identity. Our identity as a child of God is secure in Christ. It's not based on me. It's based on him. It is secure in Christ. We have a settled identity as children of God. The second, second implication is that it gives us a certainty of our inheritance. It means certainty of inheritance. We talked briefly about the fact that we are co-heirs with Christ. Galatians 4, 7, again, Romans 8, 16 to 17. That we are co-heirs with Christ. And as heirs, there is certainty of inheritance. I have an, we have an inheritance as children of God that Peter describes in 1 Peter 1, 4 as an imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven by you or by, by God, by his power. He is guarding. We have a certainty of our inheritance. Brothers and, and sisters in Christ, your inheritance from the Father is secure. It's certain. It can't be lost. So we live not in fear of losing what God has given us. We don't walk around going, oh, I, I, hope, I, I hope I don't lose my salvation. I, I hope, I, hope I, I don't sin so much that my sin is, just overshadows God's grace and it's bigger than what God's done in my life. That doesn't make him go, well, you know what? I'm, I'm going to unadopt you. No. Being adopted by God is certainty of inheritance. Our salvation is secure. So those who are true believers, and that is an important statement, true believers. That's not checking a box. It's not walking an aisle. It's not saying certain words in a prayer. The true child of God is the one who has repented from his sins, turned from his sins and confessed Jesus Christ as Lord, believing in his heart that God has raised him from the dead. Have you turned from your sins and have you confessed Christ as Lord? Have you been saved? Are you a child of God? Has he brought new life to your dead heart? Or are you still a son of disobedience, a child of wrath? Those who have been adopted, those who are true believers, your inheritance is certain. The third implication is intimacy of relationship. Intimacy of relationship. It means that we have an intimate relationship with God the Father. Again, Galatians 4, 7 and Romans 8, 15 both teach about the blessed privilege we have as adopted children to call out to God as what? Abba, Father. Abba, Father. It's an expression of intimacy, an expression of relationship. We, we bow not before a stranger or one whom we're afraid of. Instead, we bow before our Father who cares for us, provides for us, defends us, sees us, hears us, and answers our request. That's who we bow before. Why? Because we have an intimacy of relationship with him as our Father. The, the longing that you hope for and want and, and strive for of intimacy here is a glimpse of the intimacy 
that you have beautifully full in the presence of your holy Father. It's an intimacy of relationship that we need to know as children of God. The fourth implication is it gives us a standard for living. It gives us a standard for living. When I graduated high school, when I was in high school, the coolest thing was getting your yearbook. You know, you didn't have phones where everybody had pictures, and so it was funny to look at your pictures that you haven't seen all, all year and usually embarrassing at the same time. But we laughed, passed your yearbook around, and everybody signed your yearbook, right? This is a big deal. So you didn't do anything in class that day. In class, it was all about getting people to sign your yearbook, right? It was such a big deal that I even took it to church because my senior year, I'd started going back to church on Wednesday nights, and I'd had this guy who was our interim youth minister. His name was Curtis Eggleston. And Curtis wrote in my senior yearbook, never forget who your father is. Never forget. Why? Because that influences the way you live. The Sermon on the Mount is kingdom ethic. It's how we are to live as Jesus' followers. Do you know what is the basis for that kingdom ethic time and time again in the Sermon on the Mount? God is our Father. So in Matthew 5.16, why are we to let our light shine? So that people would give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In Matthew 5.45, why are we to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us? So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. You may prove yourself, show yourself, demonstrate yourself to be sons of your Father, Jesus says. In Matthew 5.48, why do we strive for perfection, completeness? Because our heavenly Father is perfect. In Matthew 6.1, 4, 6, and 18, what should drive our religious piety? The greater reward given to us by who? By our Father, Jesus says. In Matthew 6, 8, why don't we pray big-worded, impressive prayers to earn God's ear, to bend his ear? Because, he says, our Father knows what you need before you ask him. In Matthew 6, 14, what's the basis for your forgiveness of others? The forgiveness of our heavenly Father. In Matthew 6, 26 and 32, why should we not be anxious about our life? Because our heavenly Father, Father provides for us. And in Matthew 7, 11, why can we be confident to take our requests and needs to God in prayer? Because our Father who is in heaven gives good things to those who ask. Every time we turn around in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, the Father and our relationship with him as our Father drives the way we are to live as his followers, as his children, as the followers of Christ, disciples of Christ. We're to live in that way because we have a relationship with our Father and we can't forget who our Father is. We magnify him, we exalt him, we glorify him. It's the basis for the kingdom ethic in the Sermon on the Mount. And lastly, what I leave you with this morning I think when it's all said and done, the reality that we are children of God, that those who once were strangers have been called sons and daughters, those who once were sons of disobedience and children of wrath are now sons of God, daughters of God, children of God. The reality of that, fifthly, gives us a longing to worship God. Him. 
It should produce in us and well up in us a desire to worship. To cry out praise to Him. O fount of love. It should generate in us a desire to lift high the name of Christ, our elder brother. It should create in us a, a desire to long and to sing out, O great God, your great name, that we would want to come and praise him and glorify him. It's the foundation for George Fraser's 19th century hymn, God our Father, we adore thee. We, thy children, bless thy name. Chosen in the Christ before thee, we are holy without blame. We adore thee, we adore thee, Abba's praises we proclaim. We adore thee, we adore thee, Abba's praises we proclaim. Oh, we, thy children, bless thy name. The reality that we have this settled identity, it's who we are in Christ, we are children of God, should lead us to long to worship him and exalt him and to praise him. And not only here, but as we depart and we live out our lives in schools, in neighborhoods, in businesses, on trips, vacations, that we would live lives of worship, never forgetting who our Father is. Let's pray.